when you have to deliver a painful treatment to somebody, what is more important, the intensity, the magnitude, or the duration? If you take a painful experience and you can make it with less intensity but last twice as long, is it better or worse? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from A.N. Wilson. The fact that logic cannot satisfy us awakens an almost insatiable hunger for the irrational. My guest today, Dan Ariely, is an expert on the irrational. He's the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University, where he attempts to put economic research in plain language. He's also a celebrated author of several best-selling books, including one of my all-time favorites, Predictably Irrational. And he's also the author of Amazing Decisions, Dollars and Cents, and his newest book, which he could not have timed better, Misbelief, which is available now wherever books are sold. Dan, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate Podcast. Lovely to be here. So I always like to start with childhood or young adulthood, and I think you have a pretty extraordinary personal story of adversity that shaped a lot of your work. Could you kind of briefly explain for everyone what happened who doesn't know your background? Yeah. So when I was in my late teens, I got badly burned. 70% of my body was burned, and I spent about three years in hospital. And it was a combination of tremendous pain, very difficult treatments, but also being plucked out of life <laughs> in some strange way and being perched in a bed for many years that kind of uh, created a tremendous earthquake in my life. So there's all kinds of terrible things that happened, but it also got me to be very sensitive to pain, to think about pain. It got me to think about medical treatments, got me to think about the decisions physicians were making. And it also got me to look a little bit about our everyday life and what was so strange about it. I'll give you one example. Yeah. So early on, I couldn't eat, of course. So I had a tube through my nose into my stomach and they fed me uh, 30 eggs a day and 7,000 calories a day to try and help the body create some tissue. And that was going on for about four months. And one day they come to me and they say, the day after tomorrow, we're taking the tube out. And what do you think was my reaction? My reaction was, please keep it in. Yeah. I said, why would anybody want to waste time chewing and eating? <laughs> I said, who would want this activity? And of course, they didn't listen to me. They took it out. I had to start eating. And very quickly, I remembered the food really tastes good. <laughs> and I haven't stopped eating since. But this story is an example of what it means to be out of life, out of the standard life for a while. All of a sudden, you get a very different perspective. And I got a very different perspective about why would people... The whole thing about eating after a few months of no eating looked incredibly strange to me. By the way, I thought more about this story as people were coming back to the office from COVID. Lots of people were saying, oh, why do we need to go back to the office? Yeah. We were perfectly fine in our homes. We like our coffee. We like our chair. Why go back to the office? And with this story in mind, I thought to myself... After two years of working from home, do people even remember what it is that they're missing? Yeah. As you say, there are all these things where people are saying on one side, I don't want to go back to work. I don't want the office. And then I'm more depressed and lonely and disconnected and disengaged than ever. And they just don't really draw the, the connection. It's kind of been fascinating. That's right. Um, of course, the analogy between eating and coming back to the office is not perfect because it's a good analogy for forgetting it's not a good analogy for remembering. Yeah. So you can say, okay, after four months of not seeing people, we might forget a little bit about the camaraderie of work. But when it comes to food, the first time you taste a strawberry, you remember, oh, this is what strawberry feels like. I remember how good it is. But coming back to work is not exactly coming back to work. After we have destroyed social relationships for two years, let's say, uh, coming back to work, day one is not equivalent 
to eating a strawberry and remember, oh, this is what it's, it's right. about. It would yeah. take it's different. It yeah. would take a while to the strawberry to hasn't changed. <laughs> That's right. So I know this experience led you to question kind of a lot of the things that seemed rational but didn't make sense from your treatment. How did that translate into you getting into behavioral economics? Yeah, so maybe the pivotal moment for me in that whole experience, there were lots of experience, lots of things I noticed, lots of things I worried about, lots of things that were peculiar, placebos, addiction, all kinds of things. But the most painful part of my day was the bath treatment. This was a treatment where the bandages, they, they soaked me and then they had to rip off the bandages. And because yeah. so much of my body was burned, it took a really long time. And the question was, of course, how do you remove the bandages while creating the least amount of pain to the patient? And the nurses thought that the right approach is the ripping approach. And I hated that approach, but they were in charge and they did what they did. And when I started studying at the university, I started doing experiments. And I compared what happens to the ripping approach versus the slow approach. And if you think about the essence of this question, it's to say, when you have to deliver a painful treatment to somebody, what is more important, the intensity, the magnitude, or the duration? If you take a painful experience and you can make it with less intensity but last twice as long, is it better or worse? And the nurses, of course, believed in the ripping approach, but I tested it. And I found that they were wrong. Huh. So ripping off the Band-Aid is not a correct, that euphemism is not correct? <laughs> well, let's say the following. When it is a very small thing, it acts differently. Okay. Right? And when you have hair, there's also differences. Yeah. Because the hair follicles have dynamics to them. But if you have a substantial bandage and hair is not involved, yes, ripping quickly is not the right approach. Now, that was one thing was to say, hey, you know, I can teach something to the nurses and I spent substantial time trying to educate the medical field about this particular issue. But the other thing, it made me really wonder about people's intuitions. Here were nurses, experts in their field, people who have been doing this day in and day out, and nevertheless, they were getting things wrong. Yeah. How could that be? And of course, it could be because... They were so sure about what they were doing, that they were doing the right thing. They never tested it. But it got me to think about where else are there cases in which we're certain about that what we're doing is the best treatment, best for us, best for our patients and so on, but we're actually wrong, wrong for everybody. And it turns out that ripping bandages is just the beginning. Tip of the iceberg. Yeah. There's so many things in which we are have very good intuition, very strong intuition, but they don't lead us in the right direction. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, and there are things that we just do and that we think we make sense. Look, there's some examples from that book that I've remembered to this day. One of them, I'd be interested to explain what you talked about back then. And then actually it's coming to roost now, but the incentive system in, in real estate <laughs> and real estate brokers, right? Talk, talk a little bit about that. And everyone does it. And there's probably a little bit of a monopoly issue and there's a lawsuit now, but the whole concept doesn't make sense in terms of how we pay and as a buyer and a seller. Yeah. So lots of interesting things about real estate. Because it's such a big ticket item, you could say, oh, this is the place where people would be perfectly rational. Yeah. But is it indeed the case? And it turns out it's not. And let's just give two examples. One is the question of whether the offering price have an impact on the final price that people pick. Here's a house. Let's say it's offered at 200000 on 210 Yeah. And I need to make an offer. Does it matter if it's offered at 200 or 210 And it turns out it does. It does make a difference. Like I'm supposed to evaluate it, how valuable this house is for me, what am I willing to pay for it? And the asking price shouldn't affect it, but it does. It's also interesting that the asking price is also influential for experts. So it's not just for one first-time buyers, but it's also for experts. Another thing that happened, actually there are so many, but another thing that happened is that when people move to a new town, they are influenced by the prices of the houses in their previous towns. Yeah. That's why people in Boston love when people from New York come to buy houses here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's right. Because all of a sudden everything looks cheap now. Yeah. You still in each place should make a cost-benefit analysis. How good is this house? What am I willing to do? But this thing called anchoring happens in both of those cases. The asking price influences the final prices. And in addition, the price where you came from is creating a standard from which you evaluate other things. And then, of course, there's a whole other slew of things like one we'll talk my, about the agents, because I think that's the most interesting, the commission yeah. structure. There's a lot of research on how conflicts of interests basically blind us. They create a motivation. They create a glass or whatever, rose-tinted, something-tinted glasses from which we see the world, right? So everybody can sympathize with if you're a, a fan of a basketball team, you see life through the perspective of that team. And if a referee calls a call against your team, you think the referee is Biased, evil, yeah. vile, blind, something like that. And it turns out that financial incentives work in similar ways. If you have an incentive to do something, you will see things from that perspective. So if I'm an agent and I represent both the buyers and the seller, I have a different incentive. If I get paid for selling this house, I will want to sell it faster than it deserves. And the why there, I think, is important, right? Because the you're getting paid. I always said, you know, in certain neighborhoods, a kid could put up a lemonade stand and sell the house for the first $500,000, right? <laughs> if it's million-dollar neighborhoods. But you're paying that percentage on the whole amount. So you're paying it on the yep. whole amount where there's not a lot of talent. And then that 1% at the end, at the last $50,000 seems to be the most important to the buyer or seller, but that 1% is worth $500 to the agent, right? So That's if right. you need to spend three months more work to get that extra $500, it just doesn't seem worth it. I think you even found that when That's they sell right. their own houses, they're a lot more patient, right? That's right. So basically, if you say, here's a million dollar house, I can sell it for a million today, but if I want to get... A little bit more, I'll have to wait a long time. Yeah. Now, the thoughts change from the whole thing to just the margin. Yeah. What's the value of waiting a little longer? And if the agent says, what is the value of waiting a little longer? Saying, oh, not a good deal for me. I want the house. But when we have real estate agents, we want them to be on our side. We want them to give us our best advice. And 
I don't want to sound as if they don't try, but I don't think they are not good people. Yeah. But these incentives basically penetrate and they change people's view of life. And one other thing about conflicts of interest, think about lobbying. Lobbying is one of the best deals out there. Yeah. <laughs> If you want to, like promoting things through lobbying is incredibly efficient, like really price efficient. Argue about the moral issue, but from a price perspective, it's a great deal. Now, why is it a great deal? It's a great deal because people are cheap. And what I mean by that is that you invite somebody for a sandwich and a beer and they start viewing life from your perspective. Just imagine that you want to complain about your boss or your spouse or your kids or something. You invite somebody for a beer and by the end of that beer, they are with you. Yeah. <laughs> they complain with you, they see your view and so on, they like you more, all kinds of things happen and they want you to be successful. What you have done with that beer is to create a conflict of interest. People start seeing life from your perspective rather than from an objective perspective. And in the social world, it's a beautiful thing, right? Like you want to create human beings that if you buy somebody a sandwich and a beer, people would start liking you. Like it's a good design element. But now if you put it in the business world or you put it in the regulatory framework or you put it in banking or you put it in lobbying, not so much. And that's kind of important to remember is that a lot of the strategies that people use to make decisions with did not come out for nothing, right? They had a reason to evolve. We have a reason for conflicts of interest. It's not that it's a purely a mistake. Yeah. But of course, we evolved in a very different environment. We now function in a very different environment. And there are mechanisms now that hone in on our weaknesses and take advantage of that. So there are people who try to create conflicts of interest. Yeah. Right? It's not just when it occurs naturally. Let me ask you something on, because I think the concept of anchoring is fascinating, right? And when it basically, someone reaches out and says, we need money to help save the whales or whatever it is. And if the suggested donation is $50 versus $200, it will totally change what you give. So we can prime people, we can anchor them in certain pricing and get their thinking around that. I'm yeah. wondering how that works more qualitatively. Like one of the things that I've seen and sort of critical and some of the stuff that's going on campus now is that we seem to be anchoring people in victimization and in aggrievement and that they are wronged. And then it would seem like you would view the world that way, right? Where everyone is out to get you. Is I mean, is that consistent in the research? It just seems like if you tell people that people are out to get them, then they'll start to look for those things under every yeah. corner, around every corner. So there's a couple of psychological mechanisms, and depending on how precise we want to get into it, they are slightly different. Yeah. And it's either useful or not useful to separate. But when we think about people feeling like either they're victims or they are oppressing other people, or whether we talk about people who have misbeliefs about the world, this is basically a perspective that colors everything. So in this book on misbelief, I basically try to argue that misbeliefs are about believing about something that is not correct. That's one element. But the second element is that this belief is a central belief in people's lives and they view it everything else through that. Right. So let's take the belief that the world is flat. Let's agree that it's not the correct belief, not correct, but The people who hold this belief, it's not just that they say the world is flat. They think NASA is lying to them. And they think that every pilot knows the truth and is not sharing. And every government knows about it. And every school system does that. Now, think about waking up in the morning and say, all of these people are lying to me. Yeah. <laughs> and now you basically look at everything from this perspective. So misbelief, if you think about not just about just being wrong about something, but you think of it as a central tendency in people's lives, then it's a framework from which you view everything. And now it's enough to see one thing that fits that framework and you say, oh, yes, I knew that all along. So yes, I think that 
there's identity politics, there's lots of things that make it incredibly timely and sensitive. There's lots of things that make it incredibly timely and sensitive. But I think the young people these days who basically are primed to think about a particular perspective, it's enough for them to see one little thing and that's enough. Right. And that's not helped by the algorithms that then reinforce that, right? Because, I mean, in a non-digital world, you need to sort out, throw that out, take that. But now it does it for you with your news and your information and everything coming at you. Yeah. Yes, we can talk about social media, but there are things that push our emotional buttons. They think that the things that do it less. And the moment you create a system that pushes more or create a situation to push more on our emotional buttons... They get what they want, and we don't get what yeah. we want to the same degree. I don't know if you saw the last few days, there have been a lot of social media around the letter that Bin Laden yes. wrote to the American yes. people. When I saw that initially, I looked for the letter, and the letter is a worrisome letter for Americans. <laughs> yeah. right? Americans should read this letter and say... We're in danger, yeah. Yeah, but instead, I saw a lot of things out there where people started feeling sorry for the Al-Qaeda freedom fighters. Yeah. And I thought, like, how could somebody read this document, not understand where it came from, not remember what these people did, and express sadness for these freedom fighters and for the crimes that America have done in general. Now, you would have to have a very, very heavy lens yeah. as an American to read these few pages and have this interpretation. And it's kind of an amazing thing, right? It's, it is strange times. I think that we all feel that if we read the same information, we would come to the same conclusion. And it's so much not so that it is frightening. Well, there's an entire school of thought these days, right? And I've been reading this postmodernism, which kind of is saying there is no objective truth, which seems like a real dangerous place for us to go as a, as a society. Yeah. There are lots of things out there that have like an element of truth to them. But then if you take them to be 100% yeah. true, you're losing something. So let's talk about economics, for example. I think that economists have lots of things that are correct about. Yeah, except economic predictions. <laughs> <laughs> but you could say if you increase the inflation, if you increase interest rate, I mean, you know some right. things, right? If you increase taxes, I mean, there's all kinds of things that are just generally correct. The problem is that they're not correct all the time and the details also matters. But if you say economic theory gives us some interesting directional predictions, in most cases or in many cases, that's good. If you say, I trust it so much that I will not consult anything else and this is it and that's the whole truth, that's dangerous. The same thing is true about postmodernism. When you say, is it the case that there is some elements where it's unclear where things are, what is more true? Or are there places where we're not comfortable putting a value statement? I would say, yes, that's absolutely. But if you say that's 100% of the time and this is how the world works, now. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. My favorite on the economic is Nassim Tlaib. Every time an economist gets up on stage and predicts what the stock market is going to do, he asked them what their predictions were for <laughs> the last five years. And I That's think right. they run off stage. So they're <laughs> hiding from that. Yeah. yeah. And predicting the stock market is a different story. By the way, I have been able to predict quite well what is going on in the stock market. Huh. And I'll tell you how I do that. You ready to switch topics for a second? Yeah, yeah. Go for it. I'm sure everyone would like an advantage there. So about seven years ago, I started looking for data that would tell me how companies are treating their employees and how the employees feel about their company. And the idea is that people are really the engines of companies. But this thing we call human capital is unobservable from quarterly report and yearly report, right? Where is the passion? Now, at some point, it would translate into better products and services yeah. and so on. But it's a little hidden, in the beginning. So we looked at lots of data. We looked at satisfaction survey and we looked at things like Glassdoor and some other things. And we created a database that took us back to 2006. Okay. And we said, if we could understand how companies were treating their employees in 2006 and how the employees were feeling about the company, could we predict the stock returns of 2007? And if we knew that in 2007, could we predict the results in 2008 and so on? And the answer is generally yes. The better that they're treating them, the better the company does than the market does? The companies that treat their employees better do better, and the companies that treat their employees worse do worse. So that doesn't surprise me. The question is, is there a leading lagging indicator in terms of, I think, some companies start behaving badly when times are tough. So there's a chicken and egg component to it. Yeah. So two ways to think about the chicken and egg. One is I told you I'm using how companies treat employees in time one to predict the stock market of the next year. Yeah. So it's not that if you do well, you treat people. Because of the time lag in the algorithm, it has to be this way. But the other thing that we need to ask is, what are the things that matter? Because I measured lots of things. Some of them matter a lot. Some of them don't matter so much. Yeah. And it turns out that the things that companies can change very easily don't matter that much. Hmm. So, for example, level of salary doesn't matter that much. The level of employee retirement benefits don't matter that much. The level of healthcare benefits don't matter that much. In fact... Everything that has to do with extrinsic motivation, which are the things that are easy to change when you have more money or less money, don't matter that much. And the things that really matter have to do with intrinsic motivation. So, for example, feeling appreciated is one of the most important things out there. If you say what, like a couple of other ones, but feeling appreciated is unbelievably important. Mm. Right? Imagine that you go to work and you sacrifice all kinds of things and you help people and you put effort and so on. Having the feeling that somebody sees you and somebody pays attention ends up being very important. Being aligned with the company, being connected with the values is very important. Uh, psychological safety is very important. Sense, Why? Yeah. Because we want people to be able to talk freely. We want people to propose ideas. We don't want people to be apprehensive that somebody would go after them. All of those things make a big deal. And if you want, JP Morgan has a very good quant group. Actually, I think they're probably the best in the world. And they wrote four papers on my data. And in one of them, they showed that not only is it a good investment strategy, but it's a unique factor. Hmm. It's not what people think about momentum or something else, it's actually 
it makes sense. Like, would you like to invest in companies that don't treat their employees well? But right. here is the thing, and this maybe comes from what social scientists think, is that I want every company to have a page in their annual report that talks about their human capital. Because the way modern accounting works is that if you buy a warehouse, it's an investment. And if you invest in your people, it's a cost. Yeah. I think it's a mistake. Like I'm dreaming about- Right, you can have people that are depreciating or appreciating assets, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Just imagine that you start thinking about this and you say, how am I investing in my people? How am I getting them to be better? And maybe I can even amortize the investment. I mean, you can imagine all kinds of things happening. Right, change the accounting. Yeah, that's interesting. But I do think that people are an unbelievable resource. And I think that the way sometimes we treat people is making them less of a resource. And what's so heartbreaking about it is that everybody loses. Yeah. Think about something like work-life balance. I feel terrible when people talk to me about work-life balance. I think that there are terrible things to do at work, bureaucracy. I think there are terrible things to do in home, life, laundry. And I think there's lots of things in the middle that are good for both of them. Yeah. There's an endless number of books that you would say, this is, I don't know if it's work or life. Yeah, you want quality experiences on both sides. And if you go running, is it work or life? No, I want you to be healthy. Yeah. If you take time to think, if you go to a concert and daydream, like, I don't know, this is work or life. How did we get to this thing? Oh, is this a book work or a life work? Is this a book run, a run for work? It's all connected. By the way, if you go and take care of your health, which one is it? Like I have discussions with HR. I say, okay. If somebody is sick and they go to the doctor, is it work or life? Of course, I want people to be healthy. I want people to be emotionally healthy. I want people to be physically healthy. I want people to be energized. It's such a strange notion. But the moment, I'll tell you a story that happened in Israel. There are lots of physicians who work for the government. All the hospitals, almost all the hospitals are government hospitals. And sometimes they finish their work day. And they accept a few patients at home for a fee. Yeah. Now, the doctors went on strike. They wanted more money. They were not paid very well. And the Ministry of Finance said, okay, we'll pay you well, but we'll force you to punch a clock to say when you started and where you ended because we don't want to pay you more per hour. And instead of leaving at 5, you leave at 4.30. You know what happened? They left at 2. Yeah. (laughs) Why? Made more money. Because no matter how much they paid them, It was less than what they could get at home. Now, before this system, they felt morally obligated. They said, we are doctors. We work in the hospital. It's true. This is like the daycare experiment. It's the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. So there's so many things we mess up in terms of motivation. It is just terrible. Dan, I want to make sure we talk about your new book, Timing's Everything, uh, Misbelief. I saw one of the descriptions, which I thought really said it well. Misbelief is an eye-opening and comprehensive analysis of the psychological drivers that cause otherwise rational people to adopt deeply irrational beliefs. It's funny. I've always told people I'd rather be fooled by conspiracy theory once or twice in my life than live life thinking everything is a conspiracy. It it seems pretty exhausting. I know this book had a sort of origin story for you. So can you share that? Yeah. So go back in your mind to the beginning of COVID. And I feel I'm at the top of my career. I get calls from companies and governments and people ask, how do we do distant education and pay people on furlough? And what do we do with releasing prisoners and domestic? Like the number of questions were incredible. And I feel I'm the most useful that I could ever be. And I work, 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 nothing but COVID all the time, all day long. And then at some point in July, I get an email from somebody I helped at some point. And she said, Dan, what happened to you? what happened to me. And she sent me a long list of links. I'll just describe one of them. In that link, it shows some pictures of me from my early days in hospital, completely burned and so on. It says I was badly burned and spent three years in hospital. And then it says that because of that, I started hating healthy people. And this is why I joined the cabal and Bill Gates and tried to kill as many healthy people as possible. 
with a vaccine. Now it's a yeah. 90 second video of the creation of a villain. Right? Just amazing. By the way, we are now almost four years after that, right? Yeah. But let's say three and a half years after that. Last week, there was a new video that popped up that shows the horrors of October 7th in the south of Israel and connecting me to those brutal acts with a very complex story, as you can imagine. Yesterday, I got a call from my university that they got a letter that they had to turn to the police because of the threat nature it had. For the first two years, I got death threats almost every day. So first two years of COVID? Very, yeah. What were you doing? So I, I was just <laughs> trying to be helpful. That's the truth. Like, I don't think that... Again, those are conspiracy. People see things and they connect the dots. And the more complex it is, the more it gives them. So I helped a few governments. I had some ideas and so on. And then I got connected in the wrong tribes. But what happened in the last... So this COVID started, let's say, in, in March. I discovered the theories around me in July. And very quickly, I almost became a social currency People who wanted to elevate their prestige in, in that world basically went into me. Huh. And that got them uh, credibility. So that book is very different. All my other books are about, here's some research I've been doing. And yeah, this, here's this way starts I personally about, right. So what makes conspiracies so appealing, I think, particularly for people that are well-educated and critical thinkers. And then how do you, can you dive into the funnel of <laughs> misbelief, yeah. which is a big part of your book? Yeah. So first of all, I, I want to make it clear that we should not discount the people who believe in conspiracies and we should not discount the conspiracies. These are concepts that give people an answer to a real need. It's not the answer I would prefer, but it's people who have a real need and those conspiracies, basically misbeliefs, answer that real need. And it's not because they're not smart or wonderful or caring people. What is the need? And the need starts with the need to respond to stress. And I don't mean stress like, oh, I'm really busy. I mean the stress that says, I don't understand the world. Hmm. I don't understand how this sense. could happen. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. The massacre now in the south of Israel doesn't make sense. Beginning of COVID doesn't make sense. People who lose their job doesn't make sense. If somebody is happy and content and everything is going well, they're not going to go down the funnel. The thing you want to do in the beginning, the, the breeding ground for misbeliefs is feeling that you're a little bit like Job. Bad things are happening to me. I don't exactly understand why. And now you need a story and you need a story Ideally, you want a story with a villain so you can blame somebody else. It's not you who wants to be <laughs> at fault. And it, there's an interesting thing where it's better if it's a complex story than a simple one. Yeah, that's what's always gotten me about these conspiracy theories or when people won't come off there. I had Amanda Knox on the podcast and when the police just Avenue 1 shut down and Avenue 2 shut down, they started just connecting things that required such a stretch of the imagination rather than the simple explanation was the simple explanation. Yes. And rather than saying sometimes bad things happened. Yeah. But the reason for a complex story is that, remember, those are people who feel society is looking down on them. Right. I lost my job. I'm not doing well. Something is this. I feel under in some sense. If I have a complex story that I think I'm the only one that understand, now I can turn it into superiority. You think... You understand what's going on. Let me tell you. I'm the one who understands that this is all Bill Gates, the cabal, G5, and so on. You are actually, instead of you looking down at me, I look down at you as somebody who is not sighted. And they use all kinds of terms for us, the sheep people, <laughs> blind, all kinds of things like that. So, but that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. There's a real need for a story with the villain that is complex. People find one, and then, of course, it can go down from there. Now, if the stressful event goes away, then it's fine. But if the stressful event continues, now there's a slippery slope of people going down there. Is it also that the complex is harder to disprove than the simple? Yes. So there's a couple of other things that are interesting in the complex. It's harder to disprove, yeah. and it creates an ongoing interest. 
right? Because I right. can tell you more things and there's more nuances and complexity. And right. We can create this. But the other thing that happens, so in the book, I said the stress, cognitive structures, personality structure, and social. And the social really kind of seals the deal. Hmm. And the social, of course, is often connected to social media, but it doesn't have to be social media. But just to think about one of the elements within the social part, I'll give you an example. There was a guy who wrote a post about my crimes against humanity. And he described my crimes against humanity. And then he said there will be Nuremberg Trials 2.0, in which all the people who've committed crimes against humanity during COVID will be stand to trial and pay for their crimes. And he predicted that I will stand trial and I will be found guilty. And he raised the question of whether I should get life in prison or public hanging. This was the question. What country was and, he from? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> Lots of countries. Not countries that they have executions, by the way. And about a thousand people responded, and they responded in a very positive way. Not toward me, toward him. People congratulated how smart he was and how thoughtful and how good his writing style was. And <laughs> he expressed their feelings as well. When you think about this, like this guy, actually by picking on me in this aggressive way, got a lot of social credibility. Yeah. Right? All of a sudden, he wasn't just saying standard things. He was saying something extreme and people start paying attention to him. So he was building social credibility. And to build social credibility, you have to say something extreme. And that's one of the things that's happening is people say things that are extreme and then they get attention. Yeah. And then they have to say more extreme things and more extreme things. The second thing is he got so much love. I spend a lot of time on social media. The, the misbelievers are the nicest people I've seen to each other. And again, the psychological in, in, Online or in person? No, online to each other. Oh, to, in person too, but to each, to each other. other okay. yeah. To each other. They are unbelievably hateful to other people. Yeah. It's eerie. But to themselves, to each other, they are wonderful. And psychologically, you would say, why? Why are they so good to each other? Every day, somebody deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. Everybody writes so well. Everybody expresses. Like, and it's because they need that support. Yeah. These are people who are not getting a lot of love from the outside world. If we think COVID, Macron said that they're not French. Some other prime ministers uh, called them people who are walking in the streets with guns. I mean, there was lots of ostracism against them. And the need to feel love and support and so on was incredibly powerful, right? So again, you look at something and you say, it's strange. Then you say, but what is it fulfilling? What are the needs that are fulfilled here? And by the way, all of these things are not going away. Now, you might say, oh, COVID has been over for a very long time. Remember that this is a group of people who gave up a lot for this theory, yeah. And they spend a lot of time and effort. They're all in. All the chips are in. They're all in. How difficult it is to say, oh, I was wrong. Yeah, this goes to another one of my favorite books on cognitive dissonance. Mistakes were made, but not by me. I had the authors on, right? So it's really, really hard to get out of this once you're all in. That's right. First of all, that is some of the most important research, I think, in psychology is to understand cognitive dissonance. Yeah. And the book is fantastic. And they're lovely. So let me ask you, because I'm sure people are listening to this and they have conspiracy theorists in their organizations, in their family, in their life, go through more of the funnel of, I understand it's a need to belong or control the uncontrollable. How do you start to deprogram, rationalize with these people? Because a lot of people, I know it's broken up families and they don't know what to do. So how does one counteract some of these forces? Yeah. So first of all, we need to understand that the reason I called it the funnel is to emphasize the idea that it's easier to stop in the beginning and very hard to stop at the end, Yeah. right? And by the time we notice it in full bloom and people have already a whole social support that is an alternative social support, very hard to change. But the first thing to realize is that diagnose early, <laughs> like all of medicine. If somebody is going down the funnel, do the right thing early. And I have to say that I've made lots of mistakes in this regard. I used to have a phrase, which is, what is the color of the sky in your world? I thought it was very funny. I think that the people who start believing in some alternative thing thought it was incredibly offensive. And at a time when people start 
questioning these realities, the thing to do is not to ridicule them, but to support them. Like you want to reduce the stress, you want to understand right. what's going on in their life. That's, that's one. We didn't talk about the cognitive part, but the cognitive part is one of the easiest to fix. And I'll give you two little tricks. And can you define uh, the cognitive part too, just for people? Yeah. The cognitive part is basically thinking about the way people process information. Okay. Right? So there's the stress, cognitive, personality, and social. Cognitive is about people as information, gathering and processing information, machines. So one phrase I like is to say, what would it take to change your mind? Hmm. Now, why do I like it? Because we all know intuitively that it's very hard to persuade anybody that they're wrong. We attack heads on. Oh, here's another paper. What do you do with this data? Well, I've always said, have you ever been in a relationship with your partner or spouse and <laughs> after screaming and yelling, someone goes, oh, you know what? Totally, you're right. Like, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> I used to give lots of examples about spouses with the Me Too revolution and political correctness. It's a little tougher <laughs> to give these examples. But you're absolutely right. It's everybody has the intuition that it's very hard to persuade anybody. And the approach of what would it take to change your mind says, I'm not arguing with you. Yeah. I'm on your side. Just help me understand your side in a better way. And the other version of this, which is even better, is based on the notion of something called the illusion of explanatory depth. And the illusion of explanatory depth goes something like this. So I, I did a demonstration of this with a flush toilet. I said to people, do you understand how a flush toilet works? I said, yes. On a scale from one to 10, very high, great. Luckily for you, I have all the pieces of a flush toilet. Can you please assemble them? Nobody can assemble them. Then we say, okay, how much do you understand it? People said, not so much. So the idea here, a little bit like what would it take to change your mind, is not to attack people, but to say, help me understand your side of it. So imagine that you say, the elections were stolen. Yeah. Was it fine? How do elections work? What happens? And how was it stolen? Where? Who did it? How would it work? Many places, one place. Just help me understand your perspective. And by the way, in this case, the original papers use things like, help me understand how a zipper works, how a virus works, and everything. People say, you know what? I'm not so sure. How it works. And you're not attacking people. Just say, you help me understand how it works. And when people start, now they have to actually try to do it, right? If they don't right. really want to engage, then they don't. Or if you ask that question, what would change your mind? And they said nothing. It doesn't seem like it. Then it's like religion, right? Yeah. Well, the moment people say nothing, they also recognize that it's not based on facts. Yeah. Right? So it's actually quite important, including their realization. Right? If I say, what would it take to change your mind that the elections were not stolen, and you say nothing, it's an admission that it's not data-driven. Yeah. And the other thing to remember is we said that the misbelief is a belief in something that is wrong, but it's the adoption of that as a central tendency. I don't need people to switch completely. I need to people to be just less confident. Right? The moment you are less confident in something. You moved your confidence from 100% to 95%. That's a lot, right? Because now you will not protest. You will not spread information about that. You will be a bit more critical. Like we don't need to move you to 0%, Yeah. right? It's this. So this approach of basically saying, I'm coming it from your perspective is incredibly useful. And then when we talk about the social things, we have a problem because I don't know how you see workplaces. But when is it that people have the opportunity to get exposed to different ideas? Maybe Thanksgiving, if lots of people show up. Yeah. But mostly it's the workplace. The workplace is the place where you get to potentially get exposed to lots of things. But many workplaces say, don't talk about politics. Don't talk about touchy topics. So where are people going to get that? Right? We need to create a respectful environment in which people hear other opinions. Yeah. If I hear nothing that contradicts me, and then I go online, and again, I hear nothing that contradicts me, this is a bad journey. Right. It seems to me we need to go back to, or teach more teachers need to take even the debate approach of, I want to hear you argue the other side and your grades based on doing that, right? So that mm -hmm. we... 
like what's the strong man case that the other side would make? Yeah. It's easy to attack the weak man case, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So there's a personality trait called intellectual humility. And I don't like the name. Yeah. But it's basically saying, I understand that there are multiple sides to each story. And whatever story I have, the question is still open. I think, by the way, this is one of the things that I say we as academic educators look like we have failed. Yeah. We were supposed to help college students to understand that at the end of each class, in principle, the student should understand that everything they thought before is slightly more complex now. Right. How to think, not what to think, right? Yeah. It's more complex. There are more layers. Nuance, right. Everything more is more sides. nuanced than we want That's it right. to be. That's right. And when you look at the way some of the outcome of our education look like, it seems that we have not done a good job on teaching nuances. Yeah, it is totalitarianism of argument, right? There's yeah. right and there's wrong versus it's complicated, which is probably right. the reality for most of these situations. Yeah. All right, Dan. Well, thank you for joining us today. Been a big fan of your work for years, and it's great to have you on the show to discuss some of this in person. I'm delighted to get to meet. It was wonderful and happy to continue it any time. All right. We'll have to do it again. Well, to our listeners... Thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Dan and his book, Misbelief, on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to follow the show to be notified about new episodes and have them downloaded automatically for you to listen. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, simply hit follow on the show overview page or the three little dots in the upper right if you're in an individual episode, and then you can hit follow. You can also hit follow on CastBox, Spotify, Pandora, or your favorite podcast player. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.